Welcome to the teaching ministry of Walt East, lead chaplain at Sky Valley Chapel. We hope this teaching will serve as a practical guide for your daily walk as a Christ follower. We encourage you to follow along with your Bible and life notes, which can be found in the podcast show notes or on our website at svmin.com. Out of the entire group, he would definitely be the one that I would want to hang out with. Because you know that this guy has stories. I mean, after all, he was a fisherman. And not the type of fisherman that controls his little boat with a foot pedal. This guy moved the huge wooden boat by hand with the oars. He didn't cast a rod and reel. With, he, he threw heavy nets. And his hands had to be like concrete, with one of those man shakes that when you stuck out your hand to shake it, even though he, he didn't try, he, he crushed your hand. He hurt you. He's one of those guys, a man's man, a common dock worker of his day and age. And, and I often wondered if you, if you had a fire pit on a sandy shore, a drink in your hand late in the evening when it came time to tell stories, where would he start? I wonder if he'd go back to that day, that, that day that changed everything Simon used to be, to who he would now become. I wonder if as a fisherman he would, he would set up the scene, he'd talk about the way that the, that the moonlight danced across the ripples of the water that night, and about how he shoved off from the shore and he grabbed those big wooden oars and he dipped them into the water, how he had a good feeling that night. I wonder if he talked about the growing frustration when he tried the shallow and the deep, the river mouth where the current moved swift down to the little cove where it's still, where cast after cast, row after row, he came up empty. I wonder if he'd talk about how strange it is. You see, there's nights when you come up with little, but there's very few nights when you come up totally empty. I love to hear around the fire, the, the, the flames starting, to looking at the logs, his own impression of coming back home that day as he reached the little cove where he kept his boat tied up, seeing the number of people that were on shore. He came in unnoticed without making a sound. He didn't want to interrupt the crowd. He'd heard the guy teach before. His brother Andrew had actually introduced him to the teacher. I like to hear about how he heard Jesus break away from his message to the people and call out, Simon, can I use your boat? What's he supposed to say in front of the crowd? I'd like to know how he felt to put Jesus in the bow of the boat to, to shove off from shore. His only job to keep the oars in the water and, and keep the boat straight so that Jesus could speak and his voice could carry across the water and up the hillside. To sit there and watch the faces of your own neighbors for the first time hearing the words of God. I'd like to hear in his own words, what did he tell you? And to have Pete explain, well, when he got done teaching, he turned around and he asked me to throw the nets. I told him, 
it's not a good day for fishing. We've been out all night. I told him we'd come up empty. I told him, you're a good preacher. I'm a good fisherman. You do what you do, and I'll do what I do. And he just looked at me. I tried to tell him, if I throw the net out now with the sun up, the fish are going to see it coming a mile away, and they're just going to scatter. But the guy said, throw the nets. So I threw the nets. I want to hear him tell of his shock and amazement, maybe even fear when, when the net took off with so many fish that he couldn't even bring it into the boat, where he had to call his, he had to call his, his fishing partners out to help him. And that first realization that this man in your boat is no common preacher. There's something supernatural going on here. And we, Pete told him, I don't deserve to have a man like you in my boat. I wonder if he'd start the story on that day. On that day when they came to the shore and Jesus said, are you ready to leave it all? The business that you've made, the business partners that you've put time and investment in, all the equipment that you have, are you ready to leave it all, Peter, and follow me? I'd like to hear from Pete's own words. Was it an instant decision? Had you heard enough and, and seen enough over the past few weeks or past few months that you just cashed in at it all at once? Was there, was there hesitation? Did you stop to think about it? In the next three years, it would turn his life upside down. From that moment on, I wonder what stories he'd go to. From that moment on, would, would he talk about immediately going home and bringing Jesus with him? Which, by the way, is a good idea. When you got to go home and tell your wife, you know the business that we've been investing our entire life in, our only source of income? I've decided to leave it and take a job that doesn't pay anything for the next three years, following some itinerant preacher. If you're going to have that conversation around your kitchen table, you better bring Jesus with you. I wonder if that's why he's there. I wonder if Pete says, you've got to come with me, because she's probably not going to say what I think she's going to say if you're in the room. To come home that day and find out in Mark chapter 1 that your mother-in-law is sick. But since you brought Jesus, he goes and he heals her. And then she fixes lunch for you. Now, guys, isn't that a good card to have in your back pocket? You ever have a mother-in-law get on you a little bit? Wouldn't it be great to be able to say, well, you know, it reminds me of that day when I brought my friend Jesus home and he healed you. That's a good card to have to be able to play. If he's going to leave his paying profession, if he's going to follow Jesus without pay for three years, it's good to have the mother-in-law in your back pocket. We know that he's married. We don't know if he has kids. We know he had a business partner, his brother Andrew, and two others, James and John, brothers. And we know that he left everything to follow Jesus. From there, if we sat around that fire, I don't know where the stories would go, but for three years, he caught all of the teaching. All the words that we haven't read in the Bible, all the things that happened that we don't know about because they weren't recorded, he saw, he heard, he was there. Everything we have is just a, a small part of what Jesus taught and did. Peter was there day in, day out. He heard the conversations of Jesus. He was able to ask questions. When he woke up in the morning, there was Jesus stoking the coals, getting ready for day two, three, four, five hundred, six hundred, seven hundred, day eight hundred. 
Can you imagine the stories that this guy as a fisherman could come up with? Would he talk about the time that the synagogue leader of the, of the city came by and begged and said, my little daughter's sick. But by the time they got to the house, the crowd said, you're too late. She's already dead. But Jesus kept everybody outside. He said, oh, let's see you. James, John, and yeah, you, Pete, come with me. I want you guys in on this. Would he tell us how he walked into that room, the mom and dad over here crying, hugging each other, looking over their dead daughter, and how Jesus just came up next to her and said in Aramaic, Talitha, kum, little girl, rise up. And Pete witnessed as breath comes back into her body and her eyes opened up and fluttered. Oh, I'd love to hear that story through a, through a fisherman's eyewitness. Or about the time that he fed 5,000 people and, 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 and Pete was allowed to carry the fish and the bread. He had no idea what to tell the people where this food was from, whether it was gluten-free or not. There's no way they would believe that Jesus just prayed over a little G.I. Joe lunchbox and, and now everybody's getting filled. And Pete gets to take the food out and he gets to, he gets to carry the leftovers back. Or that night that they get into the boat and they, they push off from the shore and Jesus stays behind. And the wind and the storm kicked up and, and pushed them further out. I'm going to hear through a fisherman what it's like to be on the, the, the Sea of Galilee. That sea that you know like the back of your hand. That sea that you've been on since you were a little lad. That you have the earliest memories of because your father was a fisherman and your, your, your granddaddy was a fisherman. From the time you were old enough to climb over the gunwale of the boat and, and not be a nuisance, you were allowed to go out with the men to the time when you got your first boat of your own, your first catch and starting your own fishing business. A guy like that understands that, that what it's like when the wind comes rushing down through the, the mouth of the Jordan River, opens up across the Sea of Galilee like a mighty gale force that can pick up on that small little lake. I'd love to hear firsthand a fisherman being out there in the boat, battling the wind and the waves, trying to keep the non-fishermen from throwing up and looking out in the mist and seeing him walking from shore on the water towards you, thinking that it was a ghost. And by the time you call out, the voice that you have heard, the voice that speaks in red letters, simply says, come out to me, Peter. What in the world got into a fisherman who's learned a healthy fear and respect for the seas to take those concrete hands on the sides of the boat and to actually step out and to walk on the water until all of a sudden he started thinking about it and realizing, whoa, what am I doing? And sinking and having Jesus pull you back up and say, oh, you have little faith. Well, I guess those that are in the boat have no faith and I'll take little faith over no faith any day. I want to hear from Pete what it was like. I want to know the next time he was called out when they got to the base of the mountain and, and Jesus said, everyone stay here except for James and John and Pete to make that two, two and a half hour trek up the side of the mountain to the top, to get to the clearing and to have Moses and Elijah appear along with the one that you've committed to follow. For a Jewish boy to see these two greatest heroes, the lawgiver and the greatest of prophets of your people, you realize for a little Jewish boy, Moses and Elijah, 
one that had been dead for 1,400 years, another had been dead for almost 900 years. These were your greatest superheroes to stand there and see them talking with the one that you're following. And Pete decides to talk. What in the world would get into a fisherman's head that Moses and Elijah and Jesus are, are having a conversation and you're supposed to interrupt? And Pete goes, well, guys, uh, would you like me to put some tents up here for you? And a cloud came down and enveloped the top of the mountain. And a voice from within the cloud said, this is my son. Don't get caught up in the other two. You just listen to him. And the cloud left and they walked back down. I wonder if he would tell us around the campfire of the day that Jesus stopped and said, who do you guys think that I am? And they said, well, the crowds say that you're a prophet. The crowds say you're a preacher. You're a great man. And he goes, no, 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 no. Who do you say that I am? And Simon, not unexpectedly, spoke up and said, oh, 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 oh. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the guy with the big S on your chest. You're the Savior. And Jesus said, Simon, from now on, you're going to be called Peter. I'm changing your name to Rocky. You're a fighter. You've got concrete gloves and you've got passion. You don't know what to do with it yet, but on that rock, on that profession of faith, I'm going to build my church. You're the first to get it, buddy. It's the same guy that not long thereafter, Jesus says, well, let me tell you what we're going to do. We're going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to hand myself over and I'm going to be killed. And before they do that, they're going to spit on me. They're going to mock me. They're going to beat me. And it's Peter that pulls Jesus aside and says, whoa, wait a minute. Let me tell you something. The cross is a dumb idea. And Jesus steps back and he says, you see this guy? This guy's Satan. He's my adversary. Can you imagine being the guy that tries to talk Jesus out of the cross? That's Peter. And I wonder if as the fires die down and those coals just kind of make that rhythmic orange and, and yellow and, and red movement that you're familiar with, somewhere late in the evening, the passion drops and the voice gets more serious. I wonder if somewhere on that beach, staring into the burning coals, you hear Peter's voice simply saying, and then we went to Jerusalem. I promise the guy, if you're going to die there, I'm dying too. I promise the guy, if they're coming to get you, they're going to do it over my dead body. He gave me that little Jesus grin and, and said, nice try. But even tomorrow, by the time the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times. And I told him and I swore to him, no way, not me. You've been right up to now, but you're not right about this, Jesus. And I wonder if he tells the story about that upper room where they had the Last Supper, where Jesus got down and started washing the feet of the disciples, taking on the very lowliest of servants' jobs. And, and he got to Peter, and Peter said, you're not touching my feet. You're the Christ. You're Lord. You're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus said to him, Pete, if I don't wash your feet, you're not going to have any part of me. And Peter said, okay, then, hey, wash me. I want everything because I've learned something. I want what you got. I want you. I wonder if he would talk about leaving the room and going to the garden where Jesus once again told the disciples to stay as he walked deeper into the olive trees. He asked for Peter, James, and John to come with him, and he begged them to stay awake and to, and to pray with him. I don't want to go through this tonight. Can you guys pray for me? 
Or when Jesus was weak and afraid and questioned God's plan and he went to beg God three times to take the cup from him to change his mind. I wonder if Pete would talk about falling asleep, about being woken up to the sound of the guards and the torches and the armor and the swords coming into the garden. He swore he'd die with him and now's his chance. And he grabs his own sword and he swung it. He's used to throwing nets, not fighting. His target ducks, but he cuts off the servant's ear. And Jesus picks it up from the dirt and puts it back on the side of the guy's head and heals him. And with that, Peter runs. I'd love to hear in his own words what he was thinking when he ran off through the darkness, across the stones, and through the olive trees, when he finally caught his breath and realized, what did I do? I got to go back. And he came back close enough to see the trial, close enough for people to see him. And around the fire, such as this one in the night, it was a small servant girl that gave him away. Aren't you one of the twelve? You got the wrong guy, sweetie. It's not me. And he can't believe these words that are coming out of his mouth. And the others around the fire go, no, no, no. I think we've seen you with Jesus before. And he says, no, 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 not me. Not me. I'm not one of his followers. And finally, the crowd goes, it sounds, you got that Galilean accent. Well, that's recognized. We know that. And Peter went back to his old life. And he went back to the words that he used as a sailor. And he dropped every one of them around that fire that night. And the crowd took a step backward. And they said, whoa, with a mouth like that, I guess you aren't his disciple. And you got to live with that, Peter. I wonder how he heard Jesus was killed. When the crowd came and told him, they nailed him to the cross. I wonder what it was like to have the women come and say, we went to the tomb today. We, we didn't know it was going to be empty, but there was an angel there. And Jesus wants to see everybody. And Peter says, no, he's not going to want to see me. And they go, no, no. The angel said, go tell the disciples and Peter. Jesus is waiting for you. You're the only one he mentioned by name. He wants to see you, Pete. I wonder if he'd tell of that day after Jesus died and rose again and had walked with them of a last conversation back up on the, the shore of the beach with Peter, how he took Peter aside away from the crowd and said, Peter, are you really in this? Pete, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? You said you didn't. You said you didn't. You said you didn't. And right now, I'm just trying to clear the decks between us. And on that day, Peter said, I'm done with my old self. I know I said it before, but I'm really done with the old me. I'm in. I wonder if Pete would talk about what it was like afterward. He's the first disciple to speak publicly. The church calls it the day of Pentecost. When the Spirit actually came to believers, Pete gets up in front of a crowd in Jerusalem and starts preaching. He said, do you know who those rumors are about? Do you know, you know this Jesus who was crucified? Do you know who this man is? And he told them. And that day, 3,000 people believed in the name of Jesus. Pete was the one that got with the disciples and said, hey, guys, we're down to 11 because Judas killed himself. We need 12. The Bible didn't necessarily say they needed a magic 12, but he said, we lost a guy, so we need to replace him. And so Pete was in charge of picking. And so Matthias was added to the number, and now they got 12. And Peter became the ringleader of them all. He was the spokesperson for the disciples. 
Every time the disciples are mentioned in the Bible, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Pete's name is listed first. All the early church writers knew that's our guide. That's the one that we follow. Peter has more speaking parts in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John than anyone except Jesus. He's named more in the first four books of the New Testament than anyone except Jesus. And I wonder if we could sit around the fire pit watching the dancing coals, drinking hands, shivering off the cold, the stories that this guy would tell. And if we're going to start a series on a book called 1 Peter, there's no way we can read a word of it until we get a glimpse of this guy's life. A guy that started out with good intentions. A guy that crashed and burned numerous times. A guy that was given grace and hope. And a guy that came back and led the early church. And now he sits down and he starts to write. He only writes two books in the Bible, 1 Peter and good guess. Usually when there's a first, there's a second. Two books, and they're small. Why? You see, I see this guy as kind of a big, burly guy, slightly chubby. No, he's just, you know, buff. Rock hard. He's got hands like rocks. He's kind of an ADD guy. He loves to tell stories. He probably doesn't love to read. He doesn't want to sit around and, and write, but there's something going on in the times right now. It's been 30 years after Jesus died and rose again. And he's looking at Christianity and he realizes we're in danger. He realizes Christians are spread out across the Roman Empire and they're taking a beating. He realizes the leaders are going down one by one by one. The disciples are being killed. There's a guy named Paul who's come on the scene and, and he's written 13, 14 books in the New Testament and he's imprisoned. And the time he writes 1 Peter, maybe Paul might have already been killed by this time, but, but everyone knows it doesn't look good for the Christians. Nero has had an open season on Christians now. They're blaming the fires of Rome on the Christians just to mention that you're a follower of Christ. You're going to take heat, pun intended. And Pete realizes if there's words of encouragement to come from anybody, it falls to him. He's the spokesperson. He's the leader. He may be a fisherman, but he's learned to listen to that still small voice, to listen to the Holy Spirit talking to him. And we're in a series on 1 Peter. Now you may be saying, well, are you going to close in prayer now, Walt? Well, no. This is an introduction to 1 Peter. We're only going to hit the first two verses today. But if we're going to spend some time in 1 Peter, we got to understand the guy that wrote it. we got to understand the life behind it we got to understand this is the eyewitness. This is the guy that knew Jesus probably better than anyone in history on a personal level. This is the guy that had more conversations, more failures, more successes with Jesus than anyone that we know of. And he goes, let me give you a short book. Remember, he's a fisherman. It's written by a fisherman. And he gets a little bit of help that we'll see next week. It begins in chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Stop right there. We just kind of covered the who, the, the what, the where, the when. And if you've got your life notes and want to follow along, I don't know if you wrote anything down, but it's just the story of Peter. But now we're going to get to some churchy words, and, and I want to make them simple for you. He goes, Peter, he goes, I'm an apostle. And you may be familiar, and you may be saying, oh, an apostle. 
Well, an apostle simply means someone who is sent. An apostle is a, is a messenger. It's like an ambassador. It's the same thing. And Peter starts his letter. He says, I'm an apostle. I'm just a messenger. But let me tell you who I'm sent from. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ, period, exclamation point. And that's all he had to write. You know, if you look at the way that Paul begins his letters, Paul usually has these long, flowery things. Plus, Paul wasn't a fisherman. He was a man of, of, of words. He was a wordsmith. Peter just says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And when the early church got this parchment, when they opened them, and they said, well, who's it from? Peter. Oh, which Peter? Oh, that Peter. I tell you what, when it's from that Peter, when it's from the apostle of Jesus Christ, your ears perk up. You're going you're to listen. Well, who's he writing to? Look what it says there next. To God's elect. Now, this isn't a big word, but it's a strange word. To God's elect. Who are the elect? The elect are the part of the church that shows up even on playoff Sunday. The elect means to be chosen. That's all elect means. It means to be chosen. That Greek word simply means to be specifically chosen. You could write next to it, you could write adopted. Peter's trying to write a family truth. He says, let me tell you, I'm the one that walked with Jesus. I'm the one that tried to talk him out of the cross. I'm the one that denied him three times. I'm the one that's here to tell you, though, you're part of the family. You're elect. You're adopted. You're specifically chosen. That opening line was meant to be read for Christians around the world to go, man, Remember, they're under persecution. Things don't look good. It's meant for them to read that and say, wow, I needed that. I just needed to be reminded that this stuff is real. I needed to be reminded that the guys that walked with him are still holding on and, and still believe this, even if it means their deaths. I need to remind myself that Jesus wanted me to know that I'm adopted. I'm chosen. I have family privilege. In a Greek and Roman culture where your family tells you what status you are, it's very hard for you to ever climb up or, or, or go down the ladder. See, your name, your family name, your house name means everything. The household you were born into means everything in this culture. And Peter is flipping the script and he says, I don't care where you see yourself in life. I don't care how the world grades you. Let me remind you whose family you were elected into. You can't get any higher than that. You're a child of God. I'm writing to those of you who are God's kids. And you may have either forgotten it or you don't feel like it. And it's time for the fishermen to write a short book to encourage. To the elect. Next, he says, strangers in the world. Underline or circle that word there, strangers. I think that's a challenge, a command, and an encouragement. You know why you feel out of place? Because this isn't home. You know why you feel like you don't fit in? Because you're not supposed to. Do you know why things aren't going well for you in the world? Because you're supposed to be different. Do you realize this isn't home? You're trying to make this heaven, but it isn't. He says, you're strangers. You're, you're scattered. That's who you are as Christians. In that day and in this day and age, we're people that feel like culture doesn't accept us. We don't really fit in. The laws go against the society saying that what we believe in is whacked. And Peter would say, congratulations, you're strangers in this world. You're just passing through. This is temporary. 
Don't try to get too homey here. You're not really supposed to fit in. To strangers in this world scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. It's something different here about Peter's writing. He's not writing to a church. So many New Testament books, like, you know, like Paul's letters, you know, he's writing to the church at Philippi, so we say it's the Philippians. Or he's writing to Colossae, and we say Colossians, or to Corinth a couple times, and it was the Corinthians, first and second. Well, not Peter's book. Peter's book isn't written to a specific particular church. He's writing to Christians that are scattered. And what we now call these, these places he's missing there, that's what we would call today modern-day Turkey. He goes, I'm writing to Christians who are scattered in Sky Valley, in Redding, in Puyallup, in Bend, in Snohomish, in Red Deer, in Nyamo, in, in Vancouver, and yeah, even Michigan. And he's writing to Christians in the day and age where it, it seems like the government's going against us, the media's going against us, the social network is going against us. He's writing to Christians who are wondering, how hard is this going to get? And he goes, let me remind you. This isn't your home. Let me remind you whose family you're in. And then in verse 2, and who have been chosen, you could circle that word too again, and who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, what do you do with that word foreknowledge? There's another word that goes with it in the Bible. It's called predestination or predestined. And Christians for 2,000 years have been fighting about these words, foreknowledge and, and predestination. Does God already know who's going to be a Christian and we can't change it? Does God pick who's in and who's out? Do we have a choice if we're in or out? And everyone has sat back and, and argued foreknowledge. And in the Bible, it was never argued. It was only celebrated that God chose us. Every time this word is used, it's spoken to a group of people who are already believers. It's like a coach getting a team together and saying, okay, it's playoff day today. You're here for this day to prove something. You are the team that's going to make this happen. And you go, well, are they the team because they're already here? Or could we bring someone else? You know, no, they're in the game. They're the ones that are there. And every time the Bible talks about foreknowledge, you were picked, you're an elect, you're chosen. He's already talking to people that are in. They're in Christ. Next to foreknowledge, you could write this. God knows past, present, and future. That's foreknowledge. We have a God that stands outside of time. He can never be bound by time. And some people go, how can God know the future? And it's like, because he's on the outside of time. God knows past present, and future. Foreknowledge. Who gets to be a Christian and who doesn't? God has a choice. We have a choice. But God gets all the credit. That's how I explain it. Foreknowledge is always this. God created people, even though he already knew that people would fall and turn from him. God chose to love and send his son, even though he knew people would reject him and some would accept him. God loved us even though he knew that we didn't deserve it. God loved us even though he knew we would fail. Foreknowledge is simply saying in spite of who you are, who I am, what you and I have done, God has made a choice to give his love to us, to make his love available to us. Now, we have a choice whether we accept it or not. And this guy, Peter, writes and said, this is amazing. He says, I'm a screw up. I've blown it. 
I was a fisherman that came up empty. I didn't deserve to walk with him. And when I walked with him, I tried to talk him out of the cross. I cursed him three times. And I get to be called his messenger. It's simply God's love that is timeless and endless. I love this. Peter sets out and he he says, let me tell you about the three parts of God. Let me tell you about the three roles of God. In fact, in your life notes there, we can see them. Number one, the Father does the choosing. The Father does the choosing. We have a God that is bound and determined to love you. In his second book, 2 Peter 3, 9, it simply says this, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. He is patient with you not wanting anyone, you could circle that word anyone, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone, you could circle that word too, not wanting anyone to perish, but wanting everyone to come to repentance. There's the God that has chosen to love us in spite of us. And some of you may wrestle with that. Some of you may may say, you know, I don't think God really loves me. I don't think God could love me. You don't know what I've done. Do you understand who's writing this? The guy that said the cross is a dumb idea. The guy who abandoned Jesus in his greatest hour of need. That's the guy writing this. That's the guy saying there is a God that has chosen to love us for any chance that we would one day stop and accept and start to love him. That is a pure father's love. Secondly, the spirit sets us apart and changes us. See, it's those who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father that he continues, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Now, what does sanctify mean? That's another one of those big $30,000 theological words. It basically just means to be set apart. It's, it's set apart for a specific purpose. Now, some of you have heard me talk about before that my grandparents raised my brothers and I for four years. And my grandmother, Mama, she was a seamstress. She ran a dress shop, but she also did a lot of sewing, and, and she sewed, and she did alterations and all kinds of stuff. And my grandmother had a special pair of scissors. They had a ribbon on them. And you did not dare grab those scissors and cut paper with them. Some of you folks know what I'm talking about here. You don't cut paper with those scissors, do you, ladies? And some of you guys who may sew. You just don't do it. Those scissors were sanctified. They were set apart for a specific purpose. Never do you dare cut paper with them. Well, Peter's saying God called you. He gave his love to you. It's the Holy Spirit sets you apart. He sets you apart for a purpose, for God's purpose. The Spirit of God comes into our life and, and changes us from the inside out. He sets us apart from the rest of the world. He says you're no longer part of the world. You're elect, you're chosen, you're adopted, you're in the family. Now act like it. Christianity is the only religion, the only philosophy, the only belief in existence where the God that calls you to live a life says, you can't do it. But I will put my spirit in you to live that life through you. It's what sets Christianity apart from anything else. Once God chose us, the Spirit of God is in our life. He changes my old ways of thinking. He takes away the the old wall, the old desires, the old goals, the old dreams, my own ship, my own net, my own oars, and says, no, here's the path I want you on. That's the work of the Spirit. 
Thirdly, through Jesus, we are forgiven and daily made right. He continues in verse 2. For obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. It takes a life to cover a life. The Old Testament is full of that. It's often said that, that, that Judaism and Christianity, is, it's a bloody religion and guilty. Why do they do all the animal sacrifices? Why do they bring a lamb every year and sacrifice it? Well, it was a constant reminder that you have taken your life from God and you lived it your way. And when you take your life from God, a just God demands it back. He demands something. And so you kill a lamb. You kill a lamb, but it's only an interest payment, if you will. It never cleansed you, but it was a constant reminder of, hey, God, I've blown it. I'm far from you. Please accept this sacrifice till one day the lamb of God would come and sacrifice once for all. This is no animal. This is the son of God. And his life counts for all that he's created. And the moment that I come and say, God, I'm sorry, God, I accept that, God looks at me and he no longer sees the crummy, sinful Walt. He looks at me and says, you're covered. I see my son's blood on you. You're paid for. I've adopted you. That happened once when I believed in Jesus on the cross, and it happens daily as I come and I ask for forgiveness. Daily is a reminder that my sin is what put him on that cross, and I walk in his forgiveness. God chose me, and the death of Jesus forgives my wretched life and allows the Spirit now to see me as clean and to come in and work within me to the outside. That's why in Philippians 2, it says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Do we have to work to be saved? No. You're already saved, but you work it out. You allow the Spirit to change you from the inside out. And so Peter ends with this. So grace and peace be yours in abundance. How many of us here need an abundant load of grace and peace in our life? Grace, getting all that, that God has for us in spite of what we've done, not giving us what we deserve. Grace, giving us more than we could ever imagine. Grace in abundance and peace. Irene in the, in the, in the, in the Greek, but it, you're probably more familiar with the, with the Hebrew word shalom. Physically, peace. Spiritually, emotionally, socially, sexually, relationally, I have peace about life. Oh, how many of us just strive to have that peace in the storm that we're in right now and to have grace and know where we stand in the family of God? And Peter is convinced. You understand? You're chosen. You understand you're not at home. You understand what God did, what the Spirit did, what the Son did? Grace and peace are yours in abundance. Don't forget who you are. And Peter says, there's going to be a storm. This isn't home. You're strangers. You're exiles. Remember, you're adopted. Remember, God's foreknowledge chooses to love you and, and knows that you'll accept him. And remember, he gives you a spirit to walk with you through the storm. I'm looking forward to the coming weeks as we continue to study this fisherman's letter. You know, the early church 
history is pretty unanimous on the fact that when, when Peter was finally captured and imprisoned by Rome, they decided to crucify him on a cross as well. And I've been to that site. It's right outside of uh, St. Peter's Basilica there in what is now the Vatican, where Peter was crucified. And his one last wish, he said, I don't deserve to be crucified the way my Lord was. Crucify me upside down. I don't deserve to die like my Jesus. He's the guy that finally got it, that Jesus died on the cross to forgive me, to clear my decks so that the Spirit of God could come in and see me as clean and right with God, to change me from the inside out. Salvation, past, present, and future. The Spirit working in our life and future, how we live, where we go, and, and where Peter goes. That's how we survive the storm. It doesn't mean the storm will end. It's how we walk through the storm as strangers and exiles until we finally get home. Are you ready for the storm? We'll pick it up from there next week. Let's pray and receive the benediction. Father, thanks. God, we need this. We need to understand that this is not supposed to be home. We need to understand that this will be difficult. We need to understand that we are set apart. We need to understand, God, that we have a hope and a future. And if there's someone here this morning, Lord, that hasn't crossed that line, that, cross, that threshold of faith, we just pray that today will be the day that they choose you. And if they've already done that this morning, Lord, we rejoice with them. Thanks, God, for, for Peter, who gives guys and gals like us, people like us, hope. God, may we be people that walk this year with your spirit to change us, to be people that surely reflect you and honor you through the storm. In Jesus' name, amen. joining us for this message. For more information on Chapel Mall and the ministry of Sky Valley Chapel, please visit our website at svmin.com. You can support this ministry on our website, Facebook page, or by downloading our app in the Apple or Google Play Store. Have a blessed day.